Not safe for network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Brandon. So let's start out with our flag means death, which we saw. And we did not see the Batman. I may or may not review it next week. It depends on whether my kid catches up her homework. So what'd you think about this show, Brandon? It was pretty slow. Interesting. Did you watch all three? Yeah, I did. Okay. I felt like it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. I watched it and basically the way I pegged it is it's like an office comedy with pirates and Reese Darby is the new age boss who comes in with a different way of doing things. And there's tension because everybody's like, you do it that way. You know, like back in the 90s in particular, I feel like this was a machination of a lot of plots where you would have a new boss come in to some show and then they would have like standing desks and they would have time to go exercise, you know, or they were all about keeping their employees happy. And it was usually like a caricature of a boss that doesn't really exist. And I feel like that's kind of what Reese Darby's is, is he's always about process, like everything he's ever in. There's always rules to those things and there's rules underlining those things. And he's always obsessed with the rules. And so when I watched this, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I thought this was going to be. It's very much him having all of these rules for the pirates that don't necessarily vibe with what you're supposed to do as a pirate. Of course, like he doesn't want to kill anybody. He doesn't really want to do any of the things pirates do, which begs the question, why are you a pirate? You don't really want to kidnap people or kill people or ransom people or like steal from people. So why are you doing this? You know, because he didn't want to be with his wife and kid. There's something more going on there. I feel like they show little clips of it and he clearly feels guilty about that. So you thought it was pretty slow. Yeah, until... About midway through the third episode, and that's when Taika Waititi's Blackbeard shows up. I mean, don't get me wrong, I didn't, I did not, not like the first two episodes, and I think they were kind of setting the ground rules in those first two episodes. The third one's where they're actually getting into what the show is going to be. So you told me this before, but I feel like the first episode perfectly sets up what the show is, which is it's a pirate who doesn't do things the way pirates are supposed to do it. And a lot of crew that are wannabes or weird cast-offs that don't really belong in pirating either, if you think about it. You know what I mean? Like, I should talk about some of the cast here. So we've got Buttons, who's played by Ewan Bremner, who's Spud from Train Spotting. Yep. And uh, he's this hilarious like distant psychopath who's constantly planning for cannibalism right like he's just always prepared to have to eat the crew or whatever something's going to devolve into cannibalism always right they're stranded on a desert island better start eating people (laughs) it's like we've been here five minutes yeah and they still have stocks of food it's not like their food went away because they accidentally landed on the island when you say deserted island it's deserted except for an entire tribe of people and black Blackbeard's entire crew. So <laughs> it's not exactly deserted. No. <laughs> uh, we've got Uluwanda, played by Samson Kao, who I know from Death to 2020 and Death to 2021. I was trying to, I, I knew that guy from somewhere, and he plays a scientist in those fake documentaries that are like a, oh yeah i see things. it now yeah yeah he basically keeps bonnet from getting murdered uh bonnet <laughs> is reese darby's character and then you've got jim who's vico ortiz who's who was in transparent and is non-binary and they're playing a woman hiding in drag kind of an old trope it's a woman but like pretend to be a man although in this one it's because there's a bounty on her head Right. And so they're playing at it from a slightly different angle. Usually when you're doing that, it's a woman who wants adventure and they're not allowed to adventure. But in this one, she's way more capable than most of them. Yeah. So they they play that up a bit. And then you got Black Pete, played by Matthew Marr, who wants everybody to think he's a badass who worked for Blackbeard, but can't be the case, right? I don't think so, no. no. And if he worked for Blackbeard, he's probably pumping up his station quite a bit. I mean, he's describing Blackbeard, and he's basically like a dark, shadowy cloud with red glowing eyes. And he's like, wait, so his head is smoke he's like well when he wants it to be and he's like (laughs) so are the eyes 
floating in the smoke. He's like, no, the eyes aren't floating, but it's like none of this tracks because it's clearly fictional. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, I also noticed in episode two, you had Gary Farmer as the chief who played Uncle Brownie in Reservation Dogs. So I like that Taika Waititi was reusing him. He was very funny in that. Just has an immediate beat on him, which is like, he shouldn't be a pirate and he's going to get you all killed. And then you also have Fred Armisen and Leslie Jones show up in the third episode. And Leslie Jones is a pirate who, I guess her husband got killed by uh, Jim. She's out for revenge on this, but then also she's playing a game and she collects noses. Like there's a part (laughs) where they're just looking at all these things to drink because this one guy is where they're all wearing white suits because Reese Darby is saying it's a negotiation tactic because they're going to sell a hostage. And so you dress like everybody else feels like they're underdressed so they're wearing these like very white clothes and his the guy who he has on his side who's always taking notes on everything once again the office part of it right like you got the guy who's transcribing everything and basically his personal assistant and immediately this guy gets stabbed in front of him and has two bloody handprints just go right onto his white suit and then the other guy gets wine poured all over him right but it's not wine it's actually blood because they serve blood. And so Reese Darby is trying to figure out what to drink that's not like blood or all kinds of disgusting things. And finally, they settle on something that he points out and it seems really good. And it turns out it's juice from a jar of noses because <laughs> Leslie Jones' character collects everybody's noses in a jar and then they drink the juice in the jar. <laughs> it's fucking nuts, dude. I really enjoy it, man. So I was looking at this and apparently critically it's 90% on Rotten Tomatoes but the user score is 69%. It's another one it happens to me all the time like I always look at this stuff later when I start to hear criticisms and then I realize like I fall on the side of the critics almost all of the time. Maybe it's because I am a critic at this point but it happens quite a bit. I feel like this is the show that I signed up for like there's a lot of jokes in there that make me chuckle. I enjoyed that you start the very first episode with a mutiny brewing and Reese Darby's solution is when they're talking about things that pirates do, they're talking about murdering people and doing all this stuff. And then they mention that they have a real badass pirate flag to make them afraid. So he sets everybody up to make their own pirate flag. And so they have five different versions of pirate flag. One is like a skull that's eating another skull. Right? <laughs> one's a cat. Yeah, one's a cat because apparently this guy believes Because cats that, are evil. Yeah, cats are evil. And at one point he's talking about how cats will like suck your soul while you're sleeping and how they <laughs> cats murder are witches. children. Yeah, cats are witches, all this <laughs> stuff. And there's just all these crazy pirate flags that just do not work objectively. And what really made me laugh was at the very end of the episode for the button they're lifting up the flag and then they pan out and they have all five flags <laughs> flying which I'm just like that is perfect right there that encapsulates who that captain is he doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings you know what I mean so you fly every single flag even though they're all ridiculous so one other cast member I want to point out is uh, Nat Faxon who was in uh, Club Dread and he was also in he's a uh, Elfo in Disenchantment okay voice of that not really a notable character but definitely is notable as far as somebody to keep an eye out for yeah and I I couldn't figure out which guy it was but apparently. In a couple episodes, or at least one episode, the guy from Barry, who's the Czechoslovakian hitman with the shaved head. Apparently, he's in a couple episodes, but I did not notice him, so I don't know. I I mean, I just watched these, and I could not pick him out, but I love that guy, dude. I'm waiting for him to blow up. He's so fucking good in Barry. Well, moving on. So, you watch Diabolique? Diabolical. Diabolical. The boy is diabolical. Okay. So what is this? So the producer, Eric Kripke, who did The Boys, commissioned a bunch of short animated one-offs in the The Boys universe, and they're all animated. So he got up eight different writers, most of them comedians like Andy Samberg, Aquafina wrote one. Those are the two that stuck off the top of my head. So like the Aquafina episode, the... Kid is trying to score marijuana and so gets in the back of the car and like the guy is clearly unhinged and like crashes the car. And like in the suitcase with the marijuana was uh, a vial of Compound V. So she takes that and then like 
drinks it and has control over sentient poop. Okay. (laughs) Control over sentient poop. So she makes poop sentient and has control over it. Okay. I got to be honest. I'm not super into the show. I was not really on the fence anyway, but when I heard the concept of this, but now that I'm hearing the details, yeah, this just sounds like the graphic novel to me. And I didn't like the graphic novel. (laughs) I finished it mostly because A, it is a real fast watch. The episodes are 15 minutes and they're like 11 minutes when you take out the credits and everything. So they go through really fast and there's only eight of them. So I sat down, like I watched the first three and they are extremely graphic. A lot of blood, guts, gore, not really much as far as story goes. And I'm like, Okay, I'll watch a couple more, and then I just ended up watching the rest of them because they just throws you the next one, throws you the next one, and pretty soon... Pretty soon you're all through them. Yeah. Did you hear the guy who played Homelander got arrested for fighting with a guy? He, like, punched him in the face a couple of times yeah. and smashed a pint glass over his face. Yeah, I did see that. It's making me not want to finish the second season. I gotta be honest, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, I don't know. I, for whatever reason, didn't get through the second season. And I just keep seeing things that make me not want to continue on this show. I don't know. For some reason, it really, really grabbed me at the time when the first season came out. And now I'm just not really into the show anymore. And I've been trying to think of why. And I think the number one reason is that I've seen a better version of this now. Because Invincible is really fucking good. And it's also deconstructing superheroes and saying like, well, what if one of them was bad? What would happen with that? And it's a really good grounded story. And it can be over the top with some of the violence, but it's done in a more mature way. And this show just feels immature on every level i i don't know i don't know why i'm going off on this right now but i've just had so many people that just keep hounding me to finish that second season i watched like two episodes of it and i was just like the thrill was just gone with that show and the more i think about it the more i don't want to and your line about the sentient poop would have slayed me at age 13 (laughs) but now i'm just like i have no fucking time for this like there are so many other things that i would rather watch yeah. How did you feel about the show at the end? So you said they move quick. Did you enjoy it? I I don't know if I really enjoyed it. You were talking about Invincible with all the over-the-top graphic violence. So imagine that without the plot. Yeah, that doesn't sound <laughs> pleasant. Like, it's like, the that's the reason I stopped after the first three episodes was like, so the second episode, and I don't remember who wrote that, but it's like a episode of Looney Tunes. And I'm pretty sure that like it's done several times, like where there's a little baby that just goes out, goes through a construction site and through all this precarious stuff. And somebody's trying to get the baby back, but it just ends up getting messed up along the way. And this is a baby, but it's like a superhero baby. So it shoots lasers out of its eye. Like Invincibles. (laughs) Yeah. Because the baby shoots lasers out of its eyes, as I recall. The Incredibles? Yeah. Yeah, you said Invincibles. That's why I was confused. Oh, yeah. Anyway. But yeah, so imagine that baby just going through a construction site and like going like as a thing, the beam's being lifted up into the air, like is crawling along the beam. And, and there, okay, so it's occurring to me another thing that really soured me on the boys was I watched the entire first season. I was very into it. And then I picked up the graphic novel and I read a lot of issues of the graphic novel and we went to review it. And so I was familiar with the source material as we were talking about it back when we're doing pop culture consumption. And it was just so goddamn immature. The entire thing, it was just, you could tell that they were shining it up for the show. Yeah. But then I started hearing things that were in the second season. When the second season started, I didn't get started right away. And so when I went to start, there was maybe six or seven episodes up in catch up mode. But I started to hear things and I didn't really enjoy the the first two episodes. I remember hearing a lot of like edgelord kind of stuff about the show. And then it occurred to me, I think the currency of that show is just shocking people. I would disagree with that. The stuff with Stormfront and the uh, zealous media is really interesting. So Stormfront is an ex-Nazi, like hung with Hitler back in the day. 
and then like reinvented herself as Stormfront, but she is like straight up Nazi. Okay. But she's like doing all this really right wing, like political movement. And then like the way she's talking with the people that are like doing the, the media front of Vought. But our percentage points like went up, like I may have been edgy, but people don't care. They all want to see a strong united front against whatever it was they were up against. And it was, you know, a lot of xenophobia and stuff that, you know, the right wing media tends to rally against. Okay. So you're saying it's talking about something. Yes, it's definitely. I mean, it's not just, I mean, there is a fucking superhero with like a long 30 foot penis right see this is but, the, this is the kind of stuff i'm talking about yeah. though like i i'm aware of that plot going on i'll use invincible as an example again a particular violent scene that i'm thinking of is when you see the superman guy basically jk simmons voice i can't remember his name but when he turns on the faux justice league it's incredibly violent right but it also it serves a purpose. Yeah, that's the thing is it serves a purpose to let you know without any shadow of a doubt, whatever you're seeing here, this can't be explained away. You know, like you can't explain this in a way where this is a good guy. The violence is shocking because it's trying to let you know out of the gate right there and then this is the villain of the series. We set you up to not think that, but now you have to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the villain. It's calculated. And then later when they have him smashing his son through the train, it's because he's doing these things that are horrific so that his son is absolutely horrified so that when he gets that moment where he's got to turn the bloodlust off, it's suddenly he realizes the horror of what he's done, right? And I feel like that really shocking violence that they have has a good point. And I feel like with the boys, and once again, this comes from having read the source material and seeing how they like rejiggered it into the show. It feels like they've got this plot line that's going on, but it's running separate of the shocking violence. And I feel like the violence is just there because they know they need something every episode. Like if they don't have something every single episode, people are going to tune out. At least that's how I read it. Because every episode they have something super fucked up that happens, right? Yeah. Like the first episode, for example, of The Boys, you have the guy who is basically the Flash guy and he runs her and just annihilates that girl. That in a vacuum could be like, okay, I understand what they're doing here. You know, like this makes sense to me. But then they have other shocking stuff, in particular with Homelander, where it's like, it's not really serving anything. It's just shocking for the sake of being shocking. Like, it doesn't add anything to the plot. If he just did it and you didn't make it super graphic, it wouldn't add to it. But I don't know. I I don't know why I'm, like, so sensitive about this. But maybe it's because we've got so many superhero things now that I'm starting to get choosier. That might be it, actually. I watched anything that came across cartoon, whatever, for the longest time because there just wasn't very much superhero content out there. And now there's so goddamn much superhero content. I'm just like, all right, do I want to get on this train or not? And like, it's a battle to even get me on the train. And then if I'm on the train, when I see things I don't like, I'm going to tune out pretty fast, you know? The MCU, I give some leash because it's part of this ongoing story that I really like. You know, they're all connected and that is a calculated effort on their part as well (laughs) to keep people hooked into it. But I I also really enjoy it and like dc it's so wait and see for me all the time this robert patterson batman i've been hearing really good things about it haven't watched it yet but part of the reason why i haven't watched it is i've just gotten so goddamn much batman lately that i feel like i'm overflowed with batman and i kind of don't care what version of batman it is anymore i just am tired of him right now like i need a break but dc is not even close to letting up on the reins they're talking about three different shows off of this they're talking about a gotham show they're talking about a penguin show and they're talking about an arkham show that's three fucking shows off of one movie yeah that's a lot of batman that's all insane amount of batman we've gotten to the critical mass point for superheroes for me and i'm understanding people's superhero fatigue and i'm not fatigued with superheroes i'm just like i don't need a constant diet of it you know yeah i uh i mean how many batman movies have there been let's go through it okay 
We've got Batman the movie with Adam West. We got the 89 Batman with Michael Keaton. We got Batman Returns. We got Batman Forever. Batman and Robin. Mask of the Phantasm. Batman Begins. Dark Knight. Dark Knight Rises. So we're up to nine now. Then Batman v Superman. That's 10. Do we count Wonder Woman because he's in it? Sure. Okay. And then we got Justice That's 11. League. Justice League. Do we count the Zack Snyder version of Justice League as a separate <laughs> one? I'm not going to count that. Okay. So we're at 11. We got Lego Batman movie. And then we've got Robert Pattinson's Batman. So by my count, and that's... And the killing joke. Well... Uh, I'm not counting I mean, that one because it was straight like it would have been straight to video. They just did the one night thing in theaters. The numbers go up substantially if you count all the one night Batman cartoons that have gone up on theaters. I don't count that. OK, like Mask of the Phantasm was different. Like it was literally in theaters for as long as it could stay in theaters. It bombed. So probably not all that long, but it was meant to stay in theaters. Right. So by my count, that's 14 Batman movies. Do we count Joker? Bruce Wayne is in Joker. If we count uh, Wonder Woman, we got to count Joker. It's completely based off of it, right? So that's 15. Like, I wouldn't count Catwoman because there's no Batman in it. But, like, Joker has the origins of Bruce Wayne uh, there. It's got his parent. It's got his dad dying, dude. Uh, it's got his parents dying. Uh, I'm, I'm counting it. 15. He's not Batman yet. 15. Yeah, it's Batman Begins. <laughs> it's Batman Year Zero. It's literally Year Zero. He has not picked up the cow yet. <laughs> So 15 fucking Batman movies. I'm fucking Batmaned out, dude. You have fucking bat-fucked me at this point. <laughs> and not only that, how many cartoon series are there? You've got the Gotham TV show that was on. you got Pennyworth that was on. We've got three DCEU shows coming that are Batman-oriented. We got a silhouette and fucking that uh, Peacemaker, right? Like, I'm fucking done with Batman. I'm s I, I just need a break. <laughs> and they don't ever let up. Like, it's their most popular hero, so they never stop spinning him out. But I would have been okay waiting a few years, you know? No, just immediately with another one. I'm just feeling the fatigue on it, you know? Maybe that's one of the reasons why Marvel's kind of getting a pass with me is because they are re-spinning out characters we know, but then they're also coming up with brand new characters on top of it, and there's a steady diet of both. So it's like I've got more characters to add in, and then even when it's an established character like Spider-Man, like they're throwing three Spider-Man at the screen, but they're also throwing in Doctor Strange. You know, and how many characters are in that movie that have any sizable weight like how let me put it this way how many actors do you think had a trailer in that last spider-man movie like a full-on trailer i'm guessing mm. all three spider-man right we're gonna count yeah. this like we did with batman <clears throat> willem dafoe jamie fox right have yeah. to have trailers marissa tomei has to have a trailer john favreau you better bet your ass they're giving him a trailer that's like one of the biggest money maker for disney right yeah benedict cumberbatch for sure has a trailer right <laughs> <laughs> we could count on that. That's a lot, dude. That's a lot of trailers. Zendaya's for one got a movie. trailer. Oh, fuck yeah. How did I not even think about uh Is the Jacob kid big enough yet? Ned? Yeah, probably not. Probably not big enough for a trailer yet. Fun character, but fact that i can't come up with his name and you can't that's telling but marvel is like they're balancing a lot of characters they're bringing a lot more it's not more of the same and i guess to double back with the boys it feels like more of the same where it's just like i've seen the source material now i've like seen the source code of it and I'm kind of on to it. I just feel like it's shocking for the sh sake of shocking. And I just, I don't know. It doesn't do much for me anymore. I don't mind super shocking shit, but uh, it's a lot, dude. It's a lot to hang with like eight straight hours of like shocking shit. You know, it's a lot. All right. I wanted to talk about, we need to talk about Bill Cosby. So this is that new documentary that's on Showtime. It's four one hour parts. It's fascinating to me. And in particular, because we've talked about Bill Cosby, the death in various forms, but I want to talk about the perspective he had on civil rights, because I think it makes it more difficult looking back at it. And I think this documentary did a really good job of exploring a, the show business part of it, B the civil rights part of it and then see how do we talk about all this how do we balance that this person is like did these things that we love but also like straight up fought the fight for like civil rights and things like that on the screen but then wound up being this fucking monster of a human being and why are some people refusing to believe it right and i i thought this documentary did a really good job at getting to the bottom of that 
But some things I didn't know, they talked about I Spy when he came on that. He'd only been doing stand-up for like two years at that point. Like he just immediately went from, he started stand-up and one year later he was on The Tonight Show when Jack Parr hosted it, okay? And then another year after that, he gets I Spy. So he is the first black person on primetime TV in a dramatic role. And he's not playing a stereotype. You had people like Martin Luther King Jr. was like talking to Cosby. He's talking to Michelle Nichols, like all the people that were on TV at the time and encouraging them to keep doing that, right? Like it was important to get some kind of representation in a time when there was no representation in the 60s. You had Bill Cosby standing up when they went to have a white stunt actor in blackface. And he said- Playing a woman. No, not Not this particular time. They talked with a Bond girl in it who apparently knew Bill Cosby somehow. And she- she was stunted a couple years before and they show it in slow motion so it was in live and let die and bond flips her over his shoulder and lands on the bed and it's a white man in an afro wig and like skin makeup being flipped over and when you see it in slow motion it's like abundantly clear that it's a white dude in blackface like fucking gross and when bill cosby said no i will get a black stunt performer it changed it. Like that was a demarcation point where they didn't do that anymore. They stopped having white actors in blackface doing stunts from then on. Like it just stopped immediately. So like that was a thing that nobody really knows about until the special came out that happened. So it's not like he was just doing things to get press, you know, that happened. Then in the seventies, he's doing stuff like picture pages for PBS and he's doing the Cosby show where at that point, cartoons only had one black character if any and it would usually be a stereotype once again he's having a whole bunch of characters on fat albert and they're all sorts of different people and they're based off of people he grew up with in philadelphia you have black people that are watching this that are feeling like bill cosby is doing something for him but then furthermore and i know you can speak to this because we talked about it a little bit that's our childhood right there right yeah i mean i remember watching fat albert a lot as a kid i mean it came out like about the time I was born, but I remember it was reran like on Saturday morning cartoons or actually I think that's what it was, Saturday morning cartoons. Like it was part of the Saturday morning cartoon block. Yeah. I also saw it on reruns a lot too. And then the picture pages, that was weird because I had completely forgotten about it. And then I saw them talking about it and I heard the song, picture pages, picture pages, open up your picture pages, time to do another picture page. Anyway, that immediately jogged some of my head and I was like, fuck, I forgot about this show. I used to watch it. And it was a segment on Captain Kangaroo originally, but PBS must have taken it and made it into 15 minute episodes and played it separate. Because I definitely saw just picture pages a lot when I was a kid. So you can throw that in the fire. And then we both had the Cosby show because just about fucking everybody in America was watching the Cosby show when that shit was on in the 80s, right? Yeah. And that was another show where it's like you're sitting there watching it. It's a black man who's a doctor, right? He's not struggling to make it. He's already made it. All the black people around him have made it. They're not like fighting in the ghetto or whatever, which is what TV would always have you believe. Yeah, it wasn't the Jefferson. And then it spins off into a different world. And it's about like young black people in college, right? They're not shooting people to like make it. It's important that all of this stuff happened. And I think it gives context. But then he also shows the turn where he winds up speaking against kind of gangster culture in a way. Like, you know, back when rap was really big. He was like ripping on everybody who was doing that and saying, pull your pants up and things like that. And that was when it started a riff in the black community. I should mention, I'm not trying to look past the women who are telling the story at all. Like, I think it's important. It's an important part of the documentary. He's a monster the entire time. Like all of that stuff is happening and he's just taking advantage of all these people. And you have to wonder when he's sitting there educating people, is he doing this to for his image or is he doing this as a performer like if it's for the image you have to wonder if there's an element of nobody will ever believe the victims yeah i i have to believe there's got to be some of that in it yeah I, i feel like it's like column a and column b right like it's a little bit of both to me I think he built up an image that he felt like was probably important and needed. But then I also think he was more than willing to take advantage of it. You know, it's like when you see teachers that are predators. Yeah. There is a part of me that thinks you didn't go to college and spend all of that time and all of that money to become a teacher 
just to take advantage of kids. I think you also had that predilection. And then when you got there, you took advantage of it. But you probably wanted to be a teacher on top of it. That's a lot of fucking school. You know what I mean? It's easier to go in the priesthood. Just saying. There's other ways to be a predator that would be easier. So I feel like it's probably stuff that he felt like was needed. But then also he was taking advantage when he got there. But it's interesting. They're, they really like boiled down all of this stuff. I think the worst part about what he did was you would hear these stories and women are like, they would blame themselves because they couldn't remember what happened. So they just thought they made a fool of themselves in front of Bill Cosby. And then inevitably, every single time he would try something again. And then they'd be like, oh, this guy's a fucking slime ball. Or they would take some move to protect themselves and then he'd be very grouchy about it. That just made it worse. It was one of those. I had this discussion with one of my coworkers and she was saying that she would rather be beaten and raped than like have a situation where it's like, is it rape? And I was like, I mean, isn't the physical abuse? Doesn't that make it worse? Like you get raped on top of physical abuse. But now I see what she's saying, because it's like these are people who are still thinking about it constantly and blaming themselves decades later for shit that 100 percent he did, you know? Yeah. But I would check out this documentary. I'd, I'd implore everybody to check it out. I think it's really good about having the conversation around it. And where do we go from here? How do we talk about this with other people? Like, it's still in the culture. It's not going to leave the culture. It's there. So how do we talk about this? You know, are you abandoning Cosby altogether? Are you going to take the good parts, but then explain it? Are you going to avoid talking about that part of it? It's interesting because I don't know that there's a right answer and everybody has a different one. How do you handle it? I have looked at it like I take Fat Albert, for example. It's something I had fond memories of as a kid. Like I do remember watching that show and enjoying that show. And I can just compartmentalize that part of it. And like, I know that Bill Cosby was a fucking monster. There's so many moving parts that it's really hard to just completely condemn all the work he did. And I don't want to condemn all the work he did. I condemn him and what he did. But you know, there were so many other people that came out of, say, just the Cosby show, like people that had great careers, like Felicia Rashad and uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner. Like there were people that came out of that show and, I mean, were still getting residuals. Adam Sandler's first TV appearances on the Cosby show. I don't want to make his sins reflected onto them. Well, let me ask you a different question here that's related. How do you feel about his content now? Like, I realize you've separated out, but like, will you ever consume it anymore? I don't consume it anymore. No, I don't. I, I, now, was there anything that you were still hanging with right before he got in trouble? Not really. See, there's been such a, a gap, like after the Cosby show and then he started like Cosby mysteries. Yeah. And I didn't get into that. Not a lot of people did. No, and then, like, there wasn't a lot of stuff that was really fresh and new. So, you know, Cosby Show and Fat Albert and all that stuff, like, it was there, but it was... Way in the past. It was in the past. And I wasn't still living through that. And where we lived, they didn't really ever rerun the Cosby Show. It's weird, because when I was in Oregon, they reran the Cosby Show pretty regularly, like clockwork. But they don't... They never did here. Like, I moved here. I think it might have still been going. I think it might have been the last season. I'm not sure. Like, it was the early 90s when it stopped. I'm not sure if it stopped right before I moved here or not. But it was definitely the number one show around the time it went off the air. I never saw a single rerun of it here. So it was like, as soon as I moved to Montana, it was like the Cosby show was just never present in my life. Other than occasionally watching like a E! thing where they would look back at the Cosby show or something like that. And fuck did they blow it dude true hollywood stories fuck did they blow it man they missed the biggest true hollywood story going on under everybody's noses you know the only thing that i hung with with cosby because of the reasons you're saying was bill cosby himself that fucking album dude i love that album and it's weird for me because my grandparents had his albums and used to play them religiously like we watched The Cosby Show, my mom loved it, like my brother and I loved it. And then I would go driving on long trips with the kids and I'd put in Bill Cosby himself and it still worked and it still made him laugh. And 
that was the one thing that I was hanging on with with Bill Cosby because, and I do still feel like it's one of the funniest albums. It's ever a good made. album. Like I, I think it's a great album, but I can't listen to it like at all. Like I can't even bring myself to engage with it. And it was interesting because I'm watching this documentary and they're showing how he's telling on himself in various ways. But they had this one sketch from the Cosby show and like they have this thing where this couple is fighting and then they start getting lovey-dovey with each other. Claire's kind of looking over at at, uh, Cliff Huxtable was uh, Bill Cosby and she's like, oh, they got back together anyways. And he goes, yeah, it was my barbecue sauce. And he's like, my barbecue sauce always brings people together. I just slip a little bit in their food. And then he's like, I got, and she's like, I got some on the nightstand. And then this kid like eats some of the barbecue sauce and he's with his daughter and then he just like wipes it off of his face. And I watched that and like, I didn't know, like part of me, I remember that when I watched it, it's not something I ever would have consciously said, but as soon as I saw it unfolding it, like I remembered it. And that was an ongoing gag in the Cosby show is that he believes his barbecue sauce brings people together and is magical. But then you watch it in that context and you're like, that's fucked up, dude. He's fucking telling on himself. And they bring up that he is an OBGYN. He's a doctor. He's looking at women's privates and he's in his basement. He's operating out of his basement. That's where his office is. I don't remember. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Like, it's fucked up, dude. And I didn't remember that either until they were bringing it up. And I was like, oh, my God, that's right. And then they just show him making jokes about Spanish fly over and over again, including in his book, Fatherhood, uh, to Larry King to promote his book. And he's talking about like, yeah, you just put it on the head of a needle and put it in a woman's drink and they go crazy. You know, when he's saying stuff like that, like he's fucking telling on himself over and over again for years and years and years. And just nobody picked it up. Nobody realized that it was this monster right there. So it was interesting to have all of this contextualized. And I wanted to make sure I ended with that because I didn't want to like build this up like I was talking about what a great figure he was. But this documentary talks about both of these things. And I think it does a really good job, a much better job than I do of threading that needle and kind of going between the two. So definitely check that out. I think it's an important documentary, especially if you new bill cosby growing up and it's not just like some monster on the news i think it's a good one because it's cathartic in a way you can sit there and watch it and i feel like okay i got some of that badness out of me i don't know like it it was nice to hear people give different points of view and my thoughts have changed on it over the years too subtly Let's get into some reviews on some Oscar movies. So first, I'm going to start with West Side Story, which is up for Best Picture, supporting actress for Ariana DeBose, director, cinematography, production design, and costume design, as well as sound. West Side Story, I can explain it to you, but it's basically Romeo and Juliet. I'm sure everybody knows basically what that story is. Obviously, it's a remake from a movie from a long, long time ago. I got to say the acting is on par with the original. You've got Ansel Elgort as as Tony. He does a fine job, whatever. Rachel Zegler as Maria, really, really good in this movie, as well as Ariana DeBose, who as I alluded to before, playing Anita. She is up for an Oscar on this. They really burn down the screen when they're on it. I think the cinematography is particularly on point in this movie. There's two runners, one in the opening scene where you got this guy who's like running And then you see a gang follow him and a giant gang fight happens and then police show up. And it's amazing this is all in one shot. He does it again later. It's inside a gym where they're having a school dance and they're able to show everybody who's at the dance and what they're doing and give you the geography of the scene. Spielberg is always really good at setting up his movie for great shots. But this one in particular, like I don't remember a ton of runners that Spielberg does where he just lets it go and go and go. And the fact that he gets two of them right away is pretty fantastic. I also got to say the production design is pretty impressive in this movie. It really does look like New York in a lot of spots. And I know that this has to be set. There's no part in New York that they could have shut down to do this, I'm sure. It just looks too old timey. So they do a really good job of setting everything up there. I think it's comparable to the old movie in every way. And 
I would say in particular, having a diverse cast really makes a difference because that's where the old one does not hold up at all is you have white people playing Latinos and Latinas. Like, it's just, it's not a good look. Uh, This movie fixes that and I feel like does a pretty good job. The singing is pretty good. They add a song. I think they have Maria sing one more song. I would recommend it if you're into West Side Story or if you're into musicals. Myself, I'm just not that into West Side Story. But whatever, decide for yourself. It's on Disney Plus now. Next, I got Spencer. Kristen Stewart was nominated for Best Actress in this. This is a movie that I think left a lot of people scratching their heads because it was one they thought would be up for a ton of Oscars. And then you watch it and you're like, what the hell's going on? Basically, to surmise it, it's Princess Diana is getting extremely paranoid. Her husband is having affairs on her. At the same time, she's trying to go to her childhood home and she's keeps being stopped because the house is falling apart. She's just losing her shit all throughout this movie. That's what it is in a nutshell. It's scored by all this weird avant-garde jazz and dissonant orchestral music. And I was turning to somebody I know and kind of laughing and being like, you know, her life would have been a lot happier if she had changed the music she was listening to. They end it with like a Mike and Mechanic song and it's super happy because it's like a early 90s pop song that does not fit with everything else in this movie. It is weird. It's almost a psychological drama where there isn't a whole lot of things going on outside of what's going on in her head she's just paranoid to leave the family because she wants a divorce but this is still four years before she's actually going to get that divorce this is the kind of movie i think would have gotten a lot of shoe leather like five six years ago before they diversified the academy i'm a little bit surprised that it even got a nomination because it is a weird movie that being said kristen stewart is really good in it she really looks like princess die she pulls off a lot of the mannerisms it is a really good performance it's just kind of a mad movie. If you want to check that one out, it's on Hulu. Now, this next one, Flea, is up for Best Animated Feature, International Feature, and Documentary Feature. Essentially, this is following one person. He's telling the story about when he was a child, he had to leave Afghanistan. His father was taken because they thought he was sympathizing with the communists back in the 80s when the Soviet Union fell and Afghanistan was suddenly left alone. It goes to some really dark places and I mean this is a real story this happened and so it gives you aspects of a refugee story that maybe you haven't spent a ton of time thinking about like what happens when a human trafficker is responsible for your safety what happens when you're stuck in a shipping container and you can't get out for like three or four days because you're literally sealed in there or you're in the bottom of a boat and it's leaking you know what do you do then it's just harrowing and his family is just getting split up because they're trying to go places to be safe they go for russia for a while they have to hide because they're not welcome in russia even though russians were fucking responsible for the situation that they were in to begin with so it's like they are people without a country because if they stay in their country they know it's going into a civil war of course this is right around the time when the taliban's taken over they go to russia they're not welcome there and so they're trying to escape to other places it's just really harrowing it's animated and the reason for the animation i think number one he's says at some point in the movie that his documentation he had to fudge it a bit to be able to get established where he winds up fleeing to when he finally finds safety but number two there's like a surreal edge to some of it like when he's worried about rushing police officers they're just done so dark it's interesting it adds another dimension to it that i don't think you would get if they were filming it live action plus he's telling a story and it's hanging on the story as if it's a regular movie movie not necessarily a documentary at parts and so you can get more fully immersed because they can just tell the story without weird reenactments of things it's an emotional roller coaster i was like near crying at certain parts this is not even to mention the fact that he's gay and he has no time to self-actualize and deal with any of this because he's so worried about survival day to day and in the end he gives little clues as to like the attitudes in afghanistan towards gay people they just don't exist as far as they're concerned And so he's really, really worried that his family, who's done so much for him, that's helped try to keep him safe. What are they going to think when they find out? It's fantastic. I cannot recommend this movie enough. It's the best movie I've seen in probably two years. I think everybody should watch this movie. Uh, You can find it on Hulu. So on Netflix, there's Hand of God. This is up for Best International Feature. 
So this is about like a crazy family and there's lots of comedic stuff going on in the first couple of acts. It reminds me a bit of my big fat Greek wedding in that you have all these crazy characters that are within the family and there's certain dramatic stuff going on, but it's all kind of done with a laugh. And then it goes dark in the third act. And I'm not going to get into exactly what happens, but I will say that Frederico Fellini is a character in this movie and he meets the main character. And essentially, once you get to the final act, you realize that what all of this is about is about getting all of the experiences that you need to become a filmmaker, right? Like it's not about escaping and trying to forget about your trauma. It's about facing it head on. It's about finding these whimsical moments in life and it's about turning it into a film. And so that's really what this is about. But it does a good way of giving you those seeds at the beginning, but kind of laying off of it and letting the story play out so that when you come to the end, you realize that was the theme all along and you can see it as you plot it backwards. I really enjoyed this movie. Check it out. The next one is Parallel Mothers. So Penelope Cruz is up for Best Actress and it's also up for Original Score. So this is about two mothers in a hospital that are giving birth around the same time, but they're in different points of their life. Penelope Cruz's character is middle-aged and she's more confident in who she is. And the other mother is this teenager who is battling with her own identity and where she fits in with the world and like a negative perception in certain ways. She's not into having this baby. And so they both have babies. And unfortunately, this is not a movie that I can break down the plot for you too much, because if I do, it really enters spoiler territory. But I will say it has a very crazy and dramatic shift in the second act that you probably will not see coming. The way that Penelope Cruz handles this is really interesting because she's not showy within this shift which is not how nominations and acting tend to be nominated. In the Oscars, usually you have to be very showy with your performance. And this is not her in that movie. She is playing it very low-key, and there's certain dramatic elements to it, but it doesn't go to the place that it could, considering the subject matter that it will wind up tackling. This movie also has a plot line about Penelope Cruz's descendants were essentially murdered and then buried, and everybody in this town knows where they were buried, but they've been buried for decades, for a long time. And so thematically... What's going on with this story, weirdly enough, links with what's going on with this mother's story. But this is another one that you have to watch it and watch it play out to understand how it thematically puts together. It's like a little puzzle. And I found it fascinating. This is a movie that I just didn't know where it was going at any given time once that second act happened. Man, I love being surprised. And it's not surprised in a stupid way where they're just throwing things at you that would never happen because... They don't want you to know what's going to happen. It's all clearly started from a place of like, what if this happened? And then works backwards. And it's interesting. I would definitely check out this movie. This is one you're going to have to rent on like Amazon or YouTube or various other pay-per-view sources. It's one of the few movies that's not just streaming for anybody to watch with the subscription. But I would definitely check it out. So Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised is a documentary that's on Disney Plus and Hulu right now. It's up for Best Documentary Feature. So basically, Questlove directed this. He decided on the footage and was cutting it down. I think he started with a five-hour cut and then went down to like a three-and-a-half-hour cut and then dropped it down to this hour 50 or, or whatever it is. Essentially, this is about the Black Woodstock, as they put it. There was this concert in Harlem in 1969 and it was right as race riots were happening all over America and they were really worried about burning down Harlem so this one guy who was kind of a hustler figured out how to get all these bands in and get them paid and work with all these business owners in the city of Harlem to pull it all off there's a lot of missing pieces that they kind of explain as some music's playing at the beginning but he pulls off the concert and so they just have all these wonderful names from Soul in that time period I mean the movie starts off with Stevie Wonder that's a fucking flex to begin your movie with Stevie Wonder, you know? They also have a pretty notable part with Fifth Dimension. And so, of course, Fifth Dimension did Aquarius slash Let the Sun Shine In. And it's interesting because I'm just going to be very real. When I've listened to it on the radio, not really knowing what they look like, I always wondered if it was a, a white band that was co-opting a gospel thing towards the end of the song, or if it was a black band that was doing 
some kind of white style music at the beginning by grabbing a song from hair. It turns out they're an all black group. And when they went to play this show, one of their things was that they were really pissed off that people were constantly thinking they were a white band because they were playing quote unquote white music. And so they address that. And when you see them play, it's like, oh yeah, I get it. That totally makes sense. And the way they do the gospel thing in the end, there wasn't no white singers at the time doing that shit, you know? They were just electrifying watching. I mean, this is a concert movie. We can talk about the little threads that they're sewing there, but I feel like I got the most important ones. It's just if you want to watch like Sly and the Family Stone or Gladys Knight and the Pips or B.B. King or Nina Simone all around their peaks of their careers, I would check it out. Next is Luana uh, Yak in the Classroom. So this is the first Butanese film to be nominated for an Oscar, which is up for Best International Picture. So it's about this character named Ugyen, who's burned out on teaching. He wants to go to Australia and become a singer. He's got a real bad attitude. The people at the Teacher Association can't stand him, and so they transfer him off to the middle of nowhere, the most remote classroom that exists in the civilized world, apparently. His grandmother is just constantly on him for not paying attention to his job or trying to like flee to another country. Like She knows what he's up to. She's not thrilled about him. And you can see he's just kind of a jerk. He goes up at the mountain, and he's listening to his iPod, and he's really not paying attention to things going around him and not paying attention to the cultural stuff that's there. Now, you know how this goes. We've heard this over and over again. This kind of reminds me last year with Miri, where it's one of those tales that's told over and over again in Western films. However, when you add an Eastern flavor to it, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to see how these people survive up on this mountain and how their culture involves singing or yak dung is super important in this culture. I like all of that. And he's not like a white savior per se. First off, because he's not white. But second off, he realizes that their culture, there's a lot of benefits to him. And he does use things he found in their culture to be able to infuse what he knows and have it work. And it's the first time that he's really gotten respect as a teacher. And I feel like that's the key to this. This is why this guy changes. And the ending is not predictable like i was kind of surprised at the end but pleasantly surprised i would definitely check out this one this is another one that's on google play or apple tv or various paper play services and then the final movie i'm going to cover is attica so this is up for best documentary feature it happened in 1971 basically this prison had a big revolt for four days uh it was caused because the white guards in this town attica where it's completely revolved around working in this prison like it's a company town and they have no idea what inner city people are like and in particular anybody who's not white who's from the inner city and they just started treating them terribly and so they busted through they took a bunch of guards hostage and they started staying in one of the yards within the prison meanwhile the military is surrounding it and the local police officers and everything and they bring in the news and they made it this big deal that we are going to get reforms this is important to us they're starting to make some headway but one of the guards dies from a severe beating they don't get into it in the movie exactly what happened with them. But everything starts to fall apart after that. So they got 28 of 30 reforms met. But one of their sticking points is they wanted amnesty for the murder, right? They didn't want anybody to get punished by the guards for anything that they did and slide backwards. You find out that Nelson Rockefeller, who was governor of New York at the time, was basically taking words from Nixon and decided to pump himself up as a law and order candidate for future presidential aspirations, which he wound up being vice president under Gerald Ford. So he definitely moved up the ladder. But he finally called in everybody to take the prison. So the military sends a helicopter over, they gas everybody in the yard, and then they come roaring in. They killed 29 inmates and 10 hostages. The military killed them. There was all this rumor that that they'd castorized people and that they had beaten them to death. But nope, they were riddled with bullets from guess who? The military. And then they made all of the prisoners undress 
and run across broken glass through a gauntlet where they were beating them with hoses and batons. And a lot of the stuff that they're talking about with the racism and prison reforms, it's not stuff that we've come a great deal forward since then. And so I think this is a documentary that really, really resonates with anybody who's thinking about these things. And if you're not thinking about these things, I recommend watching this and really, really thinking about it because a lot of these stories that happen are still happening in some form today. It's also, if you're a fan of Dog Day Afternoon, they're yelling Attica all the time. They're talking about this. So, you know, handy to know what the hell they're talking about. And this is available on Showtime or the Roku channel right now. Okay, so this one's for you. I'm going to tee you up since I just went off forever. God of War is being negotiated as a TV series between Sony and Amazon. Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby, who created The Expanse, as well as Rafe Judkins, who is the showrunner for Wheel of Time, are involved. What do you think about this? I saw this article and I am very skeptical of this because they have tried two or three times now to get a God of War, I know at least a movie. And I mean, they had some casting done at some one point, like the Jamin Honshu was cast as Kratos at one point, like, and God nowhere. I would definitely be in if it ever got made, but I don't. Can I make a point to why I think this will get made? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember who made Uncharted, the video game movie that's been burning up the box office? No. Sony. That's why Tom Holland's in it. But Sony's been attached with God of War since the beginning. Sony owns God of War. Yes. They want this to happen badly, dude. I know they do. They've wanted it to happen. I think it's different now because Amazon has greenlit all of these shows that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Right? Like, I think we were talking about Gears of War last week. Something like that. I don't remember. One of the car games. I think this is a moment for video games. I think it might be slowly usurping superhero stuff. Or at least they're going to try to make it happen. It's the trend right now. I think it's going to happen. I think they have a better shot at getting this done. And this is, it was, they were making it into a series, not a movie. Yeah, 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 for Amazon Prime. Right. And I think that has legs of actually being made. More so than a movie. And... If they take the 2018 God of War and go from that storyline on, I think they have a good shot because I think that the stuff they had, the original God of War trilogy, and then there's a couple of other spinoff games of that. I mean, I enjoyed those games, but they were graphic. They had a little bit of story, but they were just meant for rage unleashing. Yeah. Where the 2018 had a very solid story in the game. You know they're going to change the story a bunch though, right? Well. They kind of have to or it's not going to work. It's interesting. Video game fans will tune in, but then they've already seen the story. No, but so they had the 2018 God of War. 2022, this year, they're actually releasing God of War Ragnarok. And so that is continuing on the 2018 story with the kid Atreyu. So I think. This could probably take at the end of God of War Ragnarok and then keep going with that story. So, so you, you firmly believe they're going to just do the story that's in the video games? I think they can continue the story in the video. I don't see them going back to the, the Greek well with that because the 2018 changes to North, Norse mythology. And so I think there's a lot of... A lot of good stuff there. I just feel like it's the same old problem that video games have where it's like if you have a story within the video game, so you're just going to retell the story, but people can't play through it. So they're like, this is boring. Or you change it so that it's fresh. But then how much do you change it? Because you can change it enough where people hate it. You know, this is why I think video game movies and shows are always dicey. I think this will get greenlit. I think it'll get made. It seems like everything's getting made right now. I just don't know that they're going to follow beat for beat what that video game is. Like I I would bet on they're not going to. I think they might have the general story, but I think they're going to completely change the details. See, and I don't know, have you... You have probably have never played. No, it's no. it's not about that. This is so, just, I'm just talking like generally. Yeah. This is always the problem that video game movies face. Like it's, it's how much do you change it because you have to change it somewhat or else people are like, I've already fucking seen the story. Cause yeah. you're not, you're not it's really not, getting people. See, who I'm don't saying play they're the not going to, they're not going to just make, take the movie story. They're not taking the, the video game story and 
reconfiguring it into a movie. I'm saying they're taking part A is the 2018 video game. Part two is the 2022 video game. Part three is going to be the Amazon series. See the you think the, it's just a continuation of story? Yeah, not the story remade. Wow, so they're just giving up on ever getting a See, new viewer, and aren't they? That's part of what made tw- the 2018 game so popular. Is it was a movie in video game form? It, I mean, it had stuff you could just or world explorer and do this, but like outside of just like wandering around and doing little side quests, there was a a whole movie. Like all of the cutscenes made. A complete movie. Okay. Last thing I got here. Uh, White Man Can't Jump is being remade with Jack Harlow, who I don't know who that is, but apparently he's a rapper of some renown and he's white. So that's all I really is know that about the, the Dave dude. guy. I don't know. <laughs> I've never watched it, but uh, he's going to be playing the Woody Harrelson role and Cal Matic is a director. So Cal Matic has apparently done a bunch of music videos. I looked on IMDb and I'm like, I have never seen anything this dude has ever done. So let me ask generally, you familiar with White Man Can't Jump? Very familiar. Have I watched it since the 90s? No. I have, but that's not the question I'm getting at. Do you think it's viable to make that movie today? Do you think you can remake it and have it be successful? (sighs) No. Why is that exactly? That movie was definitely of a time. Because that came out, what, 93? It might have been 91, dude. It's before Cheers was off the air. Okay. So, 91, that was pre- uh, L.A. Riots. Yes. No. No. When the L.A. Riot, it was probably right around that time. Yeah. Pro- I, I don't know if it's before or after, but it's right in that time for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like, there was a lot of, well, I I was going to say there were a lot of racial tension then, but there's still racial tension. Yeah. <laughs> this is what, Okay. I don't know about these guys who are involved in it. And I said that up front, not because I'm trying to be shitty, but because I'm saying I don't understand the persona of this person who's playing this Woody Harrelson character or the director and what they're capable of. So I'm not not judging it off of this. But as a concept, as soon as I heard that, my boss was telling me that. And I was like, that's fucking brilliant. And he's like, really? And he hadn't seen it. That's what we came down to. He just assumed it was this crusty old thing. He hadn't seen it. But I'm like, the core of that movie is white privilege. Yeah. It really is. They they had not coined the term, or at least they weren't saying it popularly at that time. But it is about white privilege. It's like Woody Harrelson, who's like fucked himself up and gotten himself into this big mess. And you have Wesley Snipes is hustling on the streets just to get by. And he's fucking hustling because he has bullshit happen to him because of his race over and over again. And then they're using his race of being white to take advantage of other people on a court because people are assuming if you're black, you can play basketball. But if you're white, you're no good. But it's all about race that and I mean, it's right in the title dude yeah that entire movie is about white privilege like i think it absolutely not only could work i think it would be better now theoretically now that's a tough trio to top dude you're talking like wesley snipes at his absolute peak like woody harrelson is always good and you've got rosie Rosie Perez, perez like right in her peak as well now i don't know if they're gonna top it as far as the cast goes, but in terms of everything else, like we're talking about race way more openly. It was very taboo when that movie came out to talk about race. It just was. And I don't think it's nearly as taboo today, maybe in some circles, but I think we're talking about the institutions of racism and things like that. It it comes off as a little bit goofy in the older movie, but in this one, I think you could really do something with that because it is the core of the movie. I think it could work. Furthermore, basketball has changed a lot and you had your kind of like dippy slam dunking thing that was going on right when that came out now it's about threes man like the game of basketball has changed quite a bit and i'm excited to see that portrayed on screen as well because like woody harrelson's character is a dude who can shoot from really far away but he can't when he goes inside it's a different world man nobody's hitting mid-range jumpers anymore that's a fucking problem i'd be interested to see what the basketball looks like in this but please, for the love of God, whoever you get for this movie, the leads have to be able to actually play basketball. 
It has to happen because I'm going to be honest, man. I see the seams and white man can't jump now. And Wesley Snipes, as good of an athlete as he allegedly was, he is terrible at basketball. And you can tell every time he's shooting, they never show him with the ball going into the basket. They do it with Woody Harrelson a lot. With Wesley Snipes, he shoots and then they cut to the basket and the ball going in. And every time he's going to show speed and like burn around somebody, it's slow motion. And they do it slow motion because he's not quick and coordinated so he's probably not doing it super fast so you do it in slow motion so it gives the illusion that it's something that would have been fast right yeah that's what they did in major league dude if you watch him run he can't run his arms are like flopping unnaturally and like <laughs> yep they are like every goddamn scene like, it's slow as motion as soon as you're reminding that i'm like i totally just like <laughs> willie mays hey is trying to run yeah it doesn't make any sense it's not aerodynamic dude like he would have every bit of wind resistance going against him so maybe it's not even slow motion they're literally showing him run the base full speed and we thought it was slow motion this whole goddamn time <laughs> please get two guys who can play basketball and act that's all that i'm asking i know they've got to be out there yeah not lebron james <laughs> he definitely can't act Actually, he's really good in uh, Trainwreck, but he's playing himself, so how hard is that? You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, he was playing himself in Space Jam, and I've heard horrible things about that. Dude, so. Space Jam was just bad on every level. First off, it was a sequel to a terrible fucking movie. Sorry if you like the movie, but I'm not really sorry because you just have nostalgia. That movie is bullshit. I love that Carl actually aligned with me on one thing with Michael Jordan. He would get mad talking about Space Jam because he's like, it's based off of a fucking commercial. Yeah. I knew people who would not go to that Kyrie Irving movie because it was based off of a character they did commercials for. It was like YouTube short movies that were for Nike, right? Yeah. Um, I knew people who unabashedly loved Space Jam who wouldn't go to that movie because it was based off a commercial. Get your head out of your fucking ass, dude. <laughs> Anyway, we've had a lot of bad basketball movies. White Man Can't Jump is unappeasable. It's still good. I think it can be remade, and I think it could be better. But you're going to have to do a good job on casting, dude. you got a trinity of actors in there that are fucking great. Not good. Fucking great, dude. Like, all three of those guys are legends. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, like, I remember we're seeing... And when I say guys, like Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez, definitely. Yeah. And she's the one I wanted to just say something really quick. I remember her character being so irritated, but then, like, seeing it later, like, going... Her performance in that is like, wow. And she has done so much since then. But just because the tone of, like, her voice in that movie is just... Billy, really... I want a glass of water. <laughs> I can't even do I'm it. Gonna be but... on... No, I'm like, no, don't like... <laughs> no, don't, don't. don't no, we're not doing that. I don't like it when you say screw. I like make love or fuck. She's <laughs> fucking great in that movie. She simultaneously can be desirable, irritating, irritated, uh, humorous, smart. And she can do all five of these things at the exact same time. It's amazing, it, dude. It's, it's definitely an underrated it, performance. It's it. not underrated, at least for the people who were there. Like, yeah. It's, she was, I don't think she won an Oscar, but I'm pretty sure she got nominated for an Oscar for that role. Cause she fucking kills it in that movie. She's so goddamn good. And, uh, you know, her first movie is do the right thing. I still have never seen that movie. You need to watch that movie, dude. Yeah. Everything we were just talking about with white privilege all of that shit is in do the right thing like all the stuff that spike lee was talking about in that movie is the conversations we're actually having right now spike lee was teeing it up for us 30 years ago it's fucking nuts dude you really should watch it it's really good anyway take it easy please rate and review our show sign up for an anchor account you can leave voice messages through a link in the description of the podcast or you can answer our poll questions Reach out to us through Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs or Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs. Email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safer Network was created and hosted by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Aaron Donaldson and Alex Small. A podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions, too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. 
catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void.